This is Film Girls Idolcast. Hit it. week was a live performance of the song We Are the Future by Korean idol group H.O.T. that aired on an episode of the variety show Infinite Challenge on February 24th, 2018. H.O.T. originally released the song back in 1997, and this performance was part of a special reunion concert. By the end of the episode, I promise you'll care. But before I begin this episode, I want to emphasize that while I'm fairly comfortable in Japanese, my knowledge of Korean is pretty basic. And by that I mean that I can read the alphabet, and I know some basic vocabulary and grammar points. So while doing research for the Korean sections of this podcast, I relied heavily on articles written in English by both Korean and Korean-American academics, as well as on Japanese sources and Korean sources translated to Japanese and a few fan translations into English. So I want to apologize in advance if I've gotten the nuance of a lyric incorrect or if I've misunderstood something. I'm continuing to study the Korean language, so hopefully I'll be able to use direct sources like I can for the Japanese materials at some point in the future. When we left off in episode three, Hikaru Genji were roller skating off into idol group history while South Korea was gearing up for the 1988 Seoul Olympics. To set the stage for what comes next, we need to rewind the tape a few years. Well into the 1980s, South Korea was an authoritarian state. Journalists, professors, civil servants, students, if you were caught speaking out against the government, or even suspected of it, there was a good chance you could be purged or thrown in jail. But the South Korean people fought back, Labor unions and students joined together to fight politically, and there were mass demonstrations calling for democratic elections. And it wasn't all flowers and buttercups for the protesters. In one tragic incident in 1980, more than 600 students and other citizen protesters were killed 
in the city of Guangzhou in a massacre that's been compared to the 1989 events at Tiananmen Square. So by early 1987, the situation had gotten so bad that even ordinary middle-class South Koreans were out in the street protesting the government. And then on June 29, 1987, the regime announced the adoption of direct presidential elections. Democracy was on the move, the tide was turning, and popular culture was about to hit a giant reset button. The South Korea we know today was born right here. So with all the violence, censorship, and political unrest at home, it's understandable that some South Koreans would have emigrated to the relative safety of the United States. And it's even more understandable that the generation growing up amid this violence and instability would have gravitated to both the rebellious funky rhythms of American hip-hop that trickled back from their family overseas and to sparkly Japanese idol pop, officially banned but plentiful and cheap on the black market. Our old friend Machi from episode 3 dominated underground Korean dance clubs with songs like Gingiragin. And in the areas surrounding American military bases, teens practiced their black dance moves because, oh yeah, even though history books will tell you the Korean War ended in 1953, there have been American soldiers stationed in Korea ever since. And a lot of cultural mingling, among other types of mingling, goes on in the areas around the bases. So with all of that in mind, let's bring a guy named Lee Suman into this story. Born in 1952, Lee Suman came of age in the turbulent 70s. He entered the elite Seoul National University in 1971, but soon found himself more interested in the folk and rock scene than in studying. Rock songs were more likely than non-rock songs to be added to the official government blacklist, but there is enough of an appetite for the rock style that media companies considered it worth the risk, and they would do things like host campus rock contests. Amateur bands flourished around the universities, with some of those musicians and singers later transitioning to a more conventional style that was less likely of landing the performer on a blacklist, or worse, in jail. Lee Suman was a member of a couple of popular campus rock bands like this, the Sand Pebbles and the Wild Dogs. When the infamous cannabis wave struck in 1975, and numerous musicians and artists were arrested and jailed for marijuana possession, Lee Suman not only emerged unscathed, but in 1976, in the rubble of the freshly sanitized show business world, he had two hit folk songs and won the Best New Artist Award at the annual NBC Top 10 Singers Song Festival. Lee Suman was already showing an ability to deftly navigate political waters and cultural tastes. But even the great Lee Suman was no match for martial law, and when the military regime took over the country in 1979 and 1980, Lee Suman abandoned his performing career and in 1981 fled to America where he enrolled at Cal State to study engineering. And as fate would have it, that was also the same year that MTV began broadcasting. Intrigued by the popularity of artists like New Edition and Michael Jackson in MTV music videos, when Lee Suman returned home to Korea in 1985 after completing his degree, he got it into his head to try and replicate the shiny visuals and pop music he'd seen in America, but in a Korean context. He worked as a DJ to earn money 
and made a name for himself by programming and playing the trendy new computer music, rather than just spinning disco records. After saving up some cash in 1989, Lee Sumon formed SM Studio, and he made his first big signing, a young hip-hop dancer named Hyunjin Young. The story goes that Lee Suman held auditions specifically looking for men who could do the Roger Rabbit, a popular hip-hop dance move of the time that involved a bouncy backward step combined with a forward thrust of the chest, mimicking the floppy moves of the cartoon bunny of the same name. It had become a worldwide craze thanks to Bobby Brown in his Every Little Step video, released January 31st, 1989. Young had grown up near an American military base, where he'd been exposed to hip-hop music and dancing from an early age. He later said that he wasn't sure that he was even going to pass the SM Studio audition, because he was a dancer, not a singer. But Lee Suman plucked him as a diamond in the rough to be the first ever artist signed to SM. Hyunjin Young's first album, New Dance, was a fun and funky collection of hip-hop-inspired songs. The album was produced by a man named Hong Jong-hwa, a composer Lee Suman had persuaded to join under the umbrella of his new SM Studios. And musically, it's very much in step with the MIDI-driven hip-hop that was also coming out of the US. MIDI, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, allowed producers and songwriters to create musical backing tracks using digital instruments and effects. Instead of hiring a drummer and having to mic up and record a full drum kit, the new MIDI producer could do it all herself with a press of a few keys on her keyboard. Record a quick sample and loop it. Simple. Layer stabby bass lines, slather with futuristic synthesizer riffs. Finally, sprinkle in some bonus production tricks like weird panning and phase shifting. All the better to play over headphones in your brand new Walkman. The next song I'm going to play is a track from New Dance, a song called Bitungoriden Sesang, or Collapsing World. And again, I'm going to have to apologize for my lack of Korean. Um, the lyrics are a plaintive cry for help over the bouncy backing track, and the hook goes like this. Bitungoriden Sesang songe nalman Musun sengarur Heya hanen golga Oh, oh yeah. I'm, middle, I'm in the middle of a collapsing world. I wonder what I even need to do. You'll hear for yourself that Hyung Jin Young is obviously not a virtuoso singer, but his voice has a really nice earnest quality to it, and most importantly, like all my favorite dancers turned singers, he has a wonderful sense of rhythmic timing.
entire album is fantastic, and I highly recommend buying it if you have come across a copy. Mainstream Korea in 1990, however, was not quite ready for Hyun Jin Young and New Dance, and sales of the album, released April 1st, 1990, were unimpressive. So now, while Lee Soo Man was trying to figure out how to import that new edition Bobby Brown style to Korea in 1986, Young, 18-year-old Shin Dai-cho was about to release a monster record with his high school band, a heavy metal group called Shinaway. Shin Dai-cho's father is legendary rock guitarist Shin Chung-hyun, and one of the formative moments in Young Dai-cho's life was seeing his father sent to prison for, yes, marijuana one of the many musicians snared in the cannabis of seeing his father sent to jail for something that everybody was doing infuriated the young Daecho and fueled the angry heavy metal of Shinoue. But Shinoue faced an uphill battle in the late 1980s. Not only were the political and censorship factors I mentioned earlier just as harsh on a group of long-haired metal freaks as they were on aspiring hip-hop heads, but South Korea had neither the technology nor the distribution infrastructure to record and sell metal records on any sort of scale. Recording engineers in Korea could not capture the massive guitar sound. Television stations certainly weren't going to be putting metal on the hit parade, and major record companies had no interest in groups that were ugly, angry, and noisy. So what could a young band do? Shinoe broke up in 1991. Now, Shinoe's bass player was a young kid named So Taiji and he decided to leave metal for a bit and try to make music with this cool new technology he'd been playing around with, something called MIDI. He joined up with two dancers named Lee Juno and Yang Hyung Sok, and on March 23rd, 1992, they released the album Saltaeji and Boys on the now-defunct Bando Records. Saltaeji's old buddy Shindae Chol even made a guest appearance on guitar. It was a good record, and there's every chance that it might even have gone down as a cult classic, the kind of album that gets reissued on the 20th anniversary with novel-length liner notes on a prestigious specialty press. But fate intervened. On April 11, 1992, and Boys made an appearance on an NBC talent show with a song from the album called Nan Arayo, or I Know. I'll link to the performance in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. The host clearly had no idea what to make of the group, referring to them as rap talents in sort of a dismissive tone. Little did he know that Nan Adeyo was about to set the blueprint for an entirely new style of pop music. As Seltaiji sound mixed the imported light funky rhythms of American New Jack Swing with crunchy metal guitar riffs. 
and the American-inspired rapped verses were mixed with a melodic Korean-style sung chorus. And, most importantly, choreography was an essential part of the whole performance. Dressed in eye-searing neon green shirts under plain overalls, Young Suk and Juno dance in perfect sync. Back straight, they bounce and spin light as air. Seltaeji, singing and rapping the lead vocal in what seems to be a school uniform-inspired gray and black suit, accessorized with a pair of nerdy glasses, joins in on the less complicated moves. The talent show judges may have been baffled, but Nan Adeo set the nation's youth on fire. Nobody had seen anything like it before. Across the country, kids started wearing fluorescent t-shirts and overalls, learning how to rap and dance. The era of Soteji had begun. The lyrics to Nan Adeo are all about bitter teen heartache, and the sung hook is a call and response between Soteji and his boys. Oh my dear, please don't go. Right now, I'm crying. Saltagey and Boys was not just to use at home, but in a strong parallel to Bollywood film of the era, through Saltagey, the music, dance, and fashion of the West were being ingested, nativized, and sent back out to the diaspora, the first organic tendrils of what would become a major cultural export industry, K-pop. Saltagey and Boys would release four albums altogether the lyrics growing increasingly bold with songs like Gyosil Idea, Classroom Idea, which outright criticized the Korean educational system for brainwashing kids and must have had an extra kick for listeners who knew Seo Taeji himself was a high school dropout. The group were magnets for controversy, deliberately pushing at the borders of what was considered acceptable in mainstream entertainment, whether it was getting accused of having satanic messages hidden in their songs or being banned from television for having dreadlocks. But unsurprisingly, getting pushback from the man only boosted their image as artists who told it like it is. Saltagey decided to disband the group in January of 1996. 
Perhaps he'd felt he'd accomplished everything the genre could deliver. But their controversies were not over. This may be apocryphal, but their post-breakup single, Regret of the Times, is credited with bringing down the Korean government's pre-censorship system. The song had been banned due to the controversial lyrics such as, Why are you waiting your whole life for the sound of giving up? I feel like the whole world is going to go crazy soon. But fans were outraged and demanded the release of the song. And in July of 1996, pre-censorship crumbled. In their brief time in the spotlight, Saltagey and Boys unleashed a generation of brash, vibrant, youthful, rebellious fans. Not only did they change the sound of popular Korean music, but they also solidified the links between music, fashion, dance, and created a direct connection to their fans. You didn't just listen to Saltagey and Boys' records. You learned their dances. You wore what they wore and you wrote your own raps about how much school sucked. Fans weren't just passively consuming a product. They felt like they were participating in something meaningful, something bigger than themselves. And now let's return to our friend, Lee Suman, or Chingu. So, despite being packed full of sweet, sweet jams, Hyungjin Young's first album had flopped. And what followed next would have been enough to cause a lesser mortal to pack it all in and give up. Hyungjin Young was arrested under suspicion of illegal activities, throwing SM Entertainment itself under government scrutiny, and many staff left rather than participate in the ongoing shit show. In the wake of Saltagey's massive success, SM tried again and released a second album with Hyungjin Young, titled, what else, New Dance 2. This time, it was a hit. But the company putting out the album went bankrupt, and SM Entertainment lost out again. All the copies of Hyung Jin Young's third album were confiscated by the government when he was arrested for the second time. Lee Soo Man had to scramble to sell off assets just to stave off bankruptcy. Staff were abandoning the agency like rats from a sinking ship. Things were not looking good for our Bobby Brown-loving Chingu. So... I'm going to leave Lee Suman on a cliffhanger for the moment while we pop back across the Sea of Japan slash EC, where four words were about to change pop music history. That's right. Sports. Music. Assemble. People. predicted that SMAP, the former backing dancers for roller skating idols Hikaru Genji, were about to change the entertainment world. SMAP disbanded at the end of 2016 after years of rumored tensions with their management company. That's right, our old friends Johnny's and Associates. But they were, and still are, beloved by the general public. The members, now all in their 40s, are in age order, gruff voice dance master Nakai Masahiro, also the leader, 
Angelface Kimura Takia, voted sexiest guy in Japan something like 15 years in a row. Intellectual actor Inagaki Goro, who you might have seen in 13 Assassins. Oddly likable straight man Kusanagi Tsuyoshi, once caught drunkenly streaking nude through a Tokyo park. And the still adorable spoiled baby of the group, even though he's older than me, Katsori Shingo. Six-member Mori Katsuyuki left the group before they hit it super big to become a motorcycle racer. Although SMAP were vigorous dancers when they were young, much like their senpai Hikaru Genji, SMAP's true charms have always been in their personalities. Famously, SMAP's singing and dancing needed so much work that they didn't make their music debut until 1991, three years after the unit was officially formed in 1988. But that early delay turned out to be something of a blessing in disguise. The early 90s in Japan saw a downturn in the number of television music shows that would allow idols to showcase their skills. This is known in Japanese as the Aidoru Hyogaki, or Idol Ice Age. SMAP were forced by circumstance to break the mold, much as the Tanokin trio had done a decade previously. SMAP's debut was not auspicious. They held their big debut event at Seibuen Amusement Park on September 8, 1991, in the middle of a typhoon. Six young men trying to keep up a cheerful performance, dancing through puddles as their microphones shorted out, and 15,000 fans shivered under umbrellas. The group sputtered along in those early days with unimpressive sales numbers playing to half-empty venues. Our old friend Johnny, in desperation, went around to the television stations and told them SMAP would do anything except nudity. And SMAP were offered a reoccurring spot on a popular sketch show called Yume ga Mori Mori. It turned out that SMAP might not have been the best singers or dancers, but they had a collective gift for comedy and acting. And the result was magic. By stepping outside of the typical idol realm, SMAP had inadvertently opened the door to a much broader audience. It wasn't just teen girls who found themselves falling for the six handsome young men. Their moms fell for the dashing Kimutaku in his lead roles on evening dramas, while their younger brothers loved Shingo's goofy comedy antics. SMAP offered something for everybody, and as they slowly won the hearts of the nation, the group that couldn't sing saw their singles and albums start to climb in the chart rankings. Now, I know I just said that they weren't great singers, and they aren't. But SMAP has good songs. No. SMAP has great songs. And now, people were listening. Over 25 plus years, SMAP's sound necessarily changed with the times. But the one constant was that they were always right on top of the latest pop music trend. Their first and second number one singles, both coming in 1994, were written by the same man, Shono Kenichi late of the electronic dance duo Unison Air, who worked with what was then called the Shibuya Sound, named after the trendy district where all the coolest dance clubs were located. Their first number one is a now forgotten novelty song, but their second number one, the perky Gambari Mashal, became an instant classic. And if Samantha plateaued right here, we might still remember them fondly, as we do Hikaru Genji as cute boys who are funny on television. But SMAP were destined for bigger things. The best was yet to come for the group that just a few years earlier didn't have enough fans to fill Yoyogi Gymnasium. 1996 would be the pivotal year for SMAP. 
because 1996 was the year that they became the first idol group to host their own weekly comedic television show, the hour-long Smap Smap, which would showcase the boys' skill as entertainers and comedians. And best of all, each episode ended with a cross-promotional musical number. The rest of the 90s in Japanese entertainment was all Smap Country. Member Nakai Masahiro became the youngest host ever of the biggest event in Japanese television, the annual New Year's Eve music show Kohaku Utagasen. Kimura and Kusanagi were all over television playing the lead in romantic dramas. And Katori debuted his popular housewife character, Shingo Mama, who would have her own hit song, Shingo Mama no Oha Rock. SMAP not only single-handedly ended the Idol Ice Age, but they also set the mold for successful male idol groups both in Japan and in Korea for at least the next couple of decades. Moving beyond just teen music shows and schlocky films to a popular all-ages variety show and lead roles in prime-time dramas allowed for three things that would become the standard for both Johnny's and Associates and for Korean idol groups. Number one, SMAP understood the nature of cross-promotion which had become crucial for sustaining a career in the coming decades. As the 90s progressed into the 2000s and beyond, and the internet started to fracture the public's listening habits, having songs played in commercials or as television theme songs meant that not only did you have somebody else paying for the promotion, but people were guaranteed to hear the song, even if they weren't fans, or weren't fans yet. For a small band or for a small group, this would be absolutely vital exposure, and SMAP was right there leading the way. Number two, SMAP let fans behind the scenes in a way that hadn't really been done before by idol groups. Before SMAP SMAP even aired its first episode, there was a behind the scenes special that showed the members getting their makeup done, teasing each other, and talking about the skits and games that they'd played. It turns out that we didn't just like who SMAP were in front of the camera, we liked how they interacted backstage, too. SMAP's 1997 concert film, 1997 SMAP Lives, did something even better. The film was released on December 17, 1997, on both VHS and, for the first time, on DVD. The storage space of the new consumer format allowed for something that would become an increasingly important part of idol group materials, a short concert-making-of film, it showed the members up close and personal backstage getting ready for the concert. Kimura looking casually, scruffily hot, standing around shirtless and playing guitar. Shingo goofing off and clinging all over Suyoshi. Nakai looking all leaderly and businesslike, directing traffic. The usually quiet Goro flirting with the camera. Whether or not it was intentional, these films engaged us with the idol groups on a much deeper level than had previously been possible. Suddenly, fangirls like me were becoming entertainment industry experts, learning to appreciate the product on levels we hadn't even been aware of before. And the films also engaged us with the idol group members on a much deeper level. We could now see their quote-unquote real personalities, what they were like when they weren't on stage. We got to see the contrast between the blood, sweat, and tears that went on behind the scenes and the smiles on stage. And then number three, variety shows. That shows multiple as SMAP's popularity grew. The early 2000s were about the peak of record buying and sales declined all across the board 
for all artists after that. But as the 2000s closed into the 2010s, people might not have been buying as many records, but they would still tune in every week to see the men of SMAP do parodies of popular dramas, compete with their cooking skills, and sing and dance with the musical guest of the week. SMAP SMAP ran for 20 years, all the way until the group disbanded in 2016, and it continued to dominate the ratings until the end. The nation of Japan loved SMAP, and SMAP loved them right back. So to give you a taste of 1990s vintage SMAP, the next song I'm going to play is Aoi Inazuma, released July 15th, 1996. As you'll hear, SMAP maintained the Johnny's trademark unison vocal singing, but the backing track has gone full synthesizer and drum loops. The song was written by singer-songwriter Hayashida Kenji, who was a bit of a hunky dreamboat in his own right back in those days. The lyrics go like this. Aoi Inazuma ga boku o semeru Hono karada yakizukusu Ketchu tsumetai kimi no sudahaka Itsumo kokoro kuruwaseru Mado wasete You're my girl And that is uh, struck by blue lightning Burning up from the flames Your skin is cool but it always drives me crazy. You're tempting me. You're my girl. Korea had to love SMAP in secret because all Japanese media had been banned in the country after World War II. Fans resorted to buying bootleg cassettes on the black market, often for much cheaper than domestic cassettes, with the unintentional side effect of making J-pop that much more appealing to young people who had both less cash and fewer bitter memories of Japanese occupation. Combine the official ban on Japanese music with the then lax attitude towards copyright and it's no surprise that in 1996, popular Korean dance-slash-hip-hop group Rura, short for Roots of Reggae, had no problems releasing a song that was a direct ripoff of the also-ran Johnny's and Associates group Ninja 
using the ninja song, and B, music fans calling them out on it, are both pretty good evidence that despite the ban on Japanese music, people were aware of it. And the reason I bring that up is because of three little letters, H-O-T. High five of teenager. So our old chingu, Lee Suman, all this time he'd been working double time, trying to figure out the perfect formula for success. After poor Hyunjin Young got busted the second time, Lee Suman tried again with the Saltaji influenced rap rock duo J and J, and with a talented dreamboat solo artist named Yu Young Jin, who crooned sweet sweet ballads while rocking the classic vest with no shirt look. They were good, but just being good wasn't good enough for the Korean market. To hook the dedicated fangirls and their pocket money, Lee Suman needed to go big or go home. Legend has it that SM Entertainment conducted a survey of high school girls and then built a group customized to fit their demands. That group? H.O.T. They would be the biggest Korean idol group of the 90s, breaking records, setting trends, and playing to crowds so big that the Seoul subway system had to run hours past closing time just to get everybody home. The members were Heejun, the leader, Woo Hyuk, dance master, Tony, the exotic foreigner from California, Kangta, with the voice and face of an angel, and quiet baby of the group, tall, gangly Jaewon. And Jaewon was so quiet, in fact, that they once left him behind at a television studio because nobody realized he wasn't in the van. H.O.T. burst onto the scene September 7, 1996, with their first album titled We Hate All Kinds of Violence. The boys were young when they started out, teenagers singing for teenagers, the demographic called the 1318 generation. They had plenty of pocket cash and lots of love to give. H.O.T.'s first huge hit was a song called Warrior's Descendant. Borrowing its style from the recently disbanded Sautagian Boys, Warrior's Descendant is an angry, angsty rant against authority, and, all the better for the diaspora market, mixes sung choruses with rapping in both Korean and in English, courtesy of the exotic Tony. Here we go, here we go, it's time to stop mm, the violence and the hate and all the mess. It's about time somebody should stand for what is right, what is right, bang, bang, bang.
It's worth mentioning that Warrior's Descendant was written by HOT's agency senior, Mr. Shirtless Vest himself, Yu Young Jin, the first in a long string of game-changing songs he'd write for SM. With HOT, Lee Soo Man and his new SM Productions picked all the best bits from the way other boy groups worked. HOT's styling and dancing got them called the SMAP of Korea. Their sound and song lyrics railing against the man were heavily influenced by hitmaker Seo Taeji. He was even planning on having the boys graduate a la menudo when they got too old, but that idea was quietly scrapped as the members' popularity as a unit skyrocketed. And then there was the fan club. Johnny's and Associates had set up official fan clubs for their artists beginning way back in the early 80s. If you joined to support Machi and company, you'd get the official Communication Super 3 newsletter and access to special things like a VHS video of the Tano Trio's final concert. But the Johnny's fan clubs didn't, and still don't, manage the fans. As part of a Johnny's fan club, you'll be kept up to date on the group's activities, can ballot for concert tickets and apply for a spot at television filming, but the actual fan culture, things like fan chants and pen light or light stick choreography, are for the most part left strictly to unofficial channels, with fans either organizing themselves to pass along information, or letting new traditions emerge organically from the audience over a run of concert dates. Lee Suman wanted to do things differently. The official fan club for HOT didn't just have a newsletter. It acted as an official organizing channel to protect the brand. Because HOT was a brand, and all subsequent idol groups would either emulate this model or die trying. HOT had a logo, an official group color, and fans received their supporter goods, such as balloons, through the fan club itself. But it wasn't all fun and games for HOT. These teen boys had come out of the gate fast, and they were worked hard by a company determined to make as much money as possible from them. The group even made tentative first steps into the large Chinese export market, crucial during the economic downturn of 1997, which is something we'll get to in the next episode. Fangirls may have camped out overnight to buy concert tickets, but critics hated H.O.T. The older generation didn't understand how this group of young punks, some of whom even had to hide their dyed hair to appear on television, could have anything to say about life. They must be puppets, lip-syncing to songs they didn't have any say in. It's a charge that gets thrown around a lot when it comes to idol groups, and one that I don't think is fair, especially for H.O.T. Sure, five rookie teens aren't going to be put in charge of writing, producing, choreographing, and stage managing their debut. But by H.O.T.'s final album, the members were all contributing creatively and musically. H.O.T. were not marionettes. They had their own ideas about how to do things. So one thing you might have noticed that I haven't mentioned with H.O.T. was the SMAP style cross promotions and variety show appearances. SM may have cribbed SMAP style for H.O.T., but they were missing that extra dimension. But hot on the heels of H.O.T.'s rise came our rivals. Check Skis, who debuted April 15, 1997. A six-member idol group from the DSP production company, Check Skis took what HOT was doing, their group color was yellow, but they weren't performance-focused. They were personality-driven. They weren't going to be out-singing or out-dancing HOT, but during their brief existence, Check Skis not only starred in their own film, Seventeen, but were also in high demand on television variety shows. From 1997 to 1999, every step H.O.T. took, Jet were right there with them, with the two groups even sharing the prestigious Daesung Award at the Seoul Music Awards 
1998. Here's a taste of Jack Skies with a song called A Plus from the album Come Back, released September 9, 1999. <laughs> members to be constantly compared to each other, but their companies surely weren't complaining since nothing is as good for idol sales as fangirls trying to crush their rivals into dust. And the fan rivalry was intense. This was pre-internet flame wars, so fan fights all happened IRL, with the police needing to be called in on occasion, allegedly, to break things up. Women of a certain age will still make sure to mention if they were HOT or Jexky's fans. And sadly, DSP collapsed under numerous financial and accounting scandals, not to mention that the group themselves were exhausted from the rigorous schedule they'd been forced to keep to, and the group disbanded quite suddenly in May of 2000, with nobody quite sure of how many albums they'd actually sold. And as always, not far behind were H.O.T. And this chapter of Idol Group History is going to end with HOT's disbandment in 2001. It's unclear whether SM or the group members initiated the break, and the reason for the split has never been made public, although the generally accepted story is that it was over money. HOT were superstars, but they weren't necessarily seeing superstar cash from their efforts. And sadly, it seems that Jexkeys ended with about as little money from their hard work as HOT did. And spoiler alert, because of this, it's been wonderful to see both groups returning to the spotlight over the last couple of years, hopefully with much more favorable terms on their contracts. Still, fans were going to have to wait 17 years for HOT to, to appear on stage together again. In 2001, Kangta and Heejun stayed with SM and began solo careers, and the other three left and formed their own group called JTL. But despite their best efforts and a healthy fan base, they just couldn't make it work. And we'll go out with one of JTL's best remembered hits, A Better Day, from their first album, 2001's Enter the Dragon. And this has been Filmy Girl. Please feel free to send in any questions and comments to filmygirl at gmail.com or you can at me on Twitter, F-I-L-M-I-G-I-R-L. Annyeong! how we go
부러워했던 나날들 아무것도 부러울 것이 없었던 시간들 그렇게